Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Ben Sun, co-founder and general partner at Primary Venture Partners. Primary focuses on investing in companies at Seed that were founded in New York and has the largest Seed Stage portfolio impact team. Some of their investments include Jet.com, Coupon, K-Health, and Mirror. Previously, he co-founded Community Connect, which is one of the first social networking companies. So we discussed the evolution of social, why he's so bullish on companies coming out of New York, being anti-thesis, and a macro analysis of the current seed market. Without further ado, here's Ben. Ben, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you. Excellent. I want to talk from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to technology and entrepreneurship? Uh, it's a great question. So I was born and raised in New York. I went to school. I went to college at the University of Michigan. Uh, I was graduated with an economics degree, but didn't really know what I wanted to do next. I had an interest in business. My brother... Um, who's seven years older, uh, started his career in investment banking. And he said, you know, if you're interested in business, why don't you do an analyst program? It's a good kind of, you know, crash course and some kind of fundamentals. And so I applied to an analyst program. I got in, um, I was working at Merrill Lynch and this is back in the mid nineties. So when I was going through training, uh, Netscape went public. And I think I remember asking a, um, uh, an analyst classmate of mine, I'm like, what's a web browser? So, <laughs> so it was, wasn't really deep into technology at the point, but I got to actually work in the tech group at Merrill and we just started pitching internet IPOs and, uh, and that's when I caught the bug. And so started working on internet IPOs, uh, was working with, on one deal where the founder of that company actually just in, in just chatting with him, he made this observation that, um, before the web, the internet was actually all about community. So if you think about the history of the internet, it was a lot of the usage back in you know, pre-web days where these online bulletin board systems where scientists and researchers would collaborate. So very community oriented. And basically his point was like, when the web came around and he actually used this phrase, it was like a neutron bomb hit the internet, meaning it killed all the people, but left the building standing or the information standing, right? Um, and so there was like the first, you know, versions of content on the web were these like static, static content and it was very little about community, but the most popular online service at the time was AOL, where it was like a walled garden, you know, dial up service. So you had to load a CD-ROM in and download software. And if you remember AOL, the, the most popular features of AOL were things like instant messenger, chat rooms, message boards. And so... He actually said, you know, it's only in due time where community is going to migrate to the web. And based on that comment, I just started thinking a lot about that. And being someone that grew up in, in New York City, I started reflecting on real world communities kind of migrating or using the Internet in, in an online community way. 
And that's when, after I was done with my two-year analyst program, became a founder and I founded a company called Community Connect, which, which is building, uh, which built one of the first social networking sites. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and so the opportunity with Community Connect was that you saw that if, or in AOL, a lot of what features or products that consumers actually use were the actual community building part where you actually were able to connect with people online. Um, AOL Instant Messenger, um, of course. I love AOL Instant Messenger. But you saw that it was, a, it was a walled garden. And so it was to think, how do you make community a lot more open? Is that right? That's basically it. I mean, so you have to remember, this is 1997 by the time I was actually had launched our first uh, social networking site, and that was a, a social networking site targeting Asian Americans, Americans called Asian Avenue. And so this is, you know, years before Facebook, even MySpace, even if, even predates Friendster, if you remember that name. I mean, so we're talking really early on. And so if you thought about it, it was, it was really the 1.0 version of community. So we let people create profile pages. They put information about like where they're from and what schools they went to and their interests. We gave them search capabilities to find other people. We actually had a web-based instant messenger. We had, you know, web-based messaging services. We had chat rooms and message boards. And we allowed people to add people as friends. To give you some context, in 1997, I think when we launched, there were only two or three digital cameras on the market. So we actually offered to to our members, hey, you can mail in your photos and we'll scan it in for you. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I mean, it was really ahead of its time. You know, the first digital camera I bought was this like $800 Kodak camera that didn't even have a preview screen. <laughs> so, and I think, you know, it could hold like, 30 images or 30 photos. <laughs> so, I mean, we're here talking, you know, this is really early days. But, you know, we launched Asian Avenue in, in 1997 and it started getting all this traction. And all this, we started getting all this traffic. And at that point, I was like, wow, I, I need to buy more servers. You know, this is before AWS. So I raised money from friends and family. I raised $300,000 just to buy servers. Um, and it was the kind of money that your mom and your brother give you because they love you, you know, because they're like, what are you doing? This online community site? And they're like, when are you going to go back and get a real job? <laughs> so I somehow convinced them to give me some money and we bought servers and we can barely keep up with demand. And uh, but in New York, where I was based, there was no New York tech scene. So there were no VCs or tech angels. And so I went out to I went out west to try to raise money. And basically got, you know, if I can get a meeting, got laughed out of the room. And so, you know, a New York guy come into the Valley back then, that was weird. You know, two, you know, social networking wasn't even a coined term. So understanding what we we're doing was kind of confusing. And then three, in our plan, it said that we were going to launch an African-American site next. And people looked at the plan and they were like, black people and the Internet? <laughs> and people think that's weird now, but in 1997, on the cover of Business Week magazine, one of the cover articles, the headline was, will women be online? So if back then they were questioning if women were going to be on the internet, the thought, people, the thought of black people and computers, they were like, hey, dude, you left your moon boots back on your spaceship. <laughs> so we got rejected like nonstop. I came back to New York. I bootstrapped the company for almost two years out of my like out of my apartment. And then 
uh, living like a poor college kid, and then finally was able to raise some money. I raised money from basically some rich Wall Street guys. One of the guys actually became a really good friend and mentor uh, who, who unfortunately passed away a few years ago. But him and his friends put $5 million in the business, and we then launched an African-American site called Black Planet in 1999. We launched Black Planet, and, and it got really popular. So I think by the second or third week after we launched, I had a million dollars set aside for a marketing budget, and I was like, don't touch that money. We need it for more servers. So, you know, Black Planet just took off all through word of mouth. Like I had friends call me and they'd be like, hey, I heard your ads on Hot 97, like the hip hop station in New York City. I'm like, I'm not running ads on Hot 97. And it's because all the DJs joined Black Planet and were giving shout outs to Black Planet members on the hour. Or uh, I had another friend call me up and like, hey, how much you did you pay Kanye to rap about Black Planet? And I'm like, I don't know, Kanye. And in Kanye's breakout album, College Dropout, he has a song where he raps about picking up women in college on Black Planet with Talib Kweli. <laughs> so, and so it was this like crazy phenomena where Black Planet became top 25 in traffic, uh, number one in stickiness, and we kind of proved there were black people on the internet. And so, you know, finally we kind of proved there was a real market here and had real momentum, uh, raised $20 million in the dot-com boom from Comcast and Insight Ventures and a bunch of other guys. And then the dot-com crash began to happen right after we raised. And so so after a couple months, I realized, okay, the market's not coming back. We got to figure out how to turn the company to be profitable. And, uh, and so we had a lot of traffic. It was an online ad-supported business with not a big enough online ad market back then. So I basically said, all right, what's profitable in consumer internet in the year 2000. Uh, and there were, there were barely any companies that were profitable. Uh, one company that was profitable back then, and for years, a couple of years prior to that, was Match.com. So I said, well, I got people on the site like Kanye that's trying to figure out who's single and like randomly flirting and finding out someone's taken already or whatever. Like, why don't we let them create dating profiles and charge a subscription? And so basically used the free social networking traffic as a top of the funnel to our dating area. And that saved the business. So we launched a dating area and the business became profitable and cash flow positive. So it was still a modest business. We were doing like $20 million top line, but we were doing $6 million of EBITDA. And this is when, you know, you know, this is pre-mobile. Half our users are in dial-up. <laughs> People are afraid to, you know, take out their credit cards and spend online still. So it was hard, but we kind of, you know, made it work. And so, you know, I ran the company as CEO for 12 years, had 130 employees here in New York, and then uh, was fortunate to sell the business um, in early 2008 to a publicly traded media company. And that was, uh, you know, really the first stage of my kind of tech journey. Wow, that's um, amazing. Amazing. And also, I can't imagine convincing people in the early 2000s to pay for a subscription online when that was, you know, unheard of, except for maybe Mash.com and a couple others. But that's really terrific how you're also able to shift the company's maybe goals from going from growth to profitability. How has that impacted you as an investor? Obviously, we'll, I'd love to hear also about Primary's founding journey, but just thinking about what you've built as an operator and how you've shifted, had to shift from, you know, going from growth to profitability very successfully. In technology, it seems like there's this 
there's this phrase, you know, grow at all costs, um, blitz scaling, whatever phrase you like to talk about. How do you think about profitability today, especially as a um, as an investor? Well, it's a good question. So if you look at my journey, I wouldn't say we maximized the opportunity, right? We were a pretty modest exit when you now look at Facebook, right? So, and, and to give you some, you know, some more color on this, when we became profitable, I was like, wow, you know, we had an Asian American, African American, and we also had a Latino site called Mi Gente. And I said, wow, no one, like everyone thought they, they wrote us off. They're like the black Asian Latino community site company in our portfolio. They're the winner, <laughs> right? Like, you know, it was, it was, it shocked everybody. And I said, you know what? People had thought that this whole online community thing can't make money, that it couldn't make money. We just proved that it can. I think this is a bigger opportunity. And I, I had wrote this plan out to say, look, let's go beyond Asian, black, Latino. We should go after general market. We should go after college kids. We should go after, you know, Christians, gay and lesbians. Like we should do community for everybody. So um, I went back to my, my board investors and said, you know, I really want to go after the broader market. Uh, and my investors were like, you know, look, they, they had carnage everywhere, right? And they're, this is the dot-com portfolio. They're like, look, we want you to, you're one of the few winners. Like, gr- you got to grow your profits. Don't overinvest. And so that was one pretty large handicap on, like, on this ambition. But, you know, I understood. Like, I just went through it. We were, it was a near-death experience. So I was like, okay, yeah, let me not overinvest here. Um, at the same time, our technology platform that we started back in my apartment back in 1997, it was the same code base. We wrote millions of lines of code. We look under the hood and we're like, wow, we got to rewrite the whole thing. We got to retool the entire platform while still growing the traffic in the business. And this was especially really hard back then. So those two factors, you know, kind of delayed us from kind of expanding the platform to go after more markets. And, you know, oddly enough, around that time, there was a small fund that was actually based in LA that was made up of all these like LA tech entrepreneurs that had invested in, in my last round, in our last round. That fund had actually dissolved. And so we basically had like 30 people in our cap table, the LPs in there, in our cap table. And I, you know, we gave information rights to everybody, right? So even if you were a tiny LP holder in this fund, we sent you our quarterly letter or quarterly financials. And so one of those LPs in that fund saw our financials and he called me up and he's like, hey, we should buy you guys. And it was this guy, Richard uh, Rosenblatt, who's based in L.A., um, who went to you know, be a serial founder. And so Richard was running a company called Intermix at the time. And Intermix, you know, if you look at its history, you know, it was in some, you know, definitely gray area businesses, to say, to say kindly. I mean, they were, you know, in like some adware stuff some email marketing tactic stuff. It was being investigated by, you know, um, the attorney general for a lot of, you know, you know, kind of sketchy practices. And so I was like, okay, you're publicly traded, but probably not the right acquire for us. And so Richard was running Intermix. Two guys that worked for him said, hey, we're going to leave Intermix to start our own company. And Richard was like, oh, what is it? And he's like, well, it's kind of like this company that's it's, it's modeled at this company in New York called Community Connect. And Richard was like, oh, I know that business. I'm an investor. It's a great business. Don't leave. Let's set up a new co. We'll back it. Have you guys run it. And so these two guys, you know, running the subsidiary and they call the company MySpace. 
And so, uh, you know, I was in LA and Richard's like, hey, you should go meet with the CEO. And so I go meet up with the CEO of MySpace and he said, oh, you know how my partner Tom came up with the idea for MySpace? I'm like, no, how did, how did Tom come up with the idea? And he said, Tom was a big Asian Avenue user. And I'm like, Tom, Tom Anderson? <laughs> right. And then he's like, yeah, Tom was on that site picking up on Asian women all the time. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, of course. So between Tom using Asian Avenue and Richard being an investor in our company and seeing how well we're doing, they were able to launch MySpace. And when they launched MySpace, we saw them kind of catapult ahead of us really leapfrog over us and they started doing more traffic and our traffic started slowing down, our growth started slowing down. And so getting back to your original question on these trade-offs, you realize that like, if you don't continue to grow and press the gas, someone may really leapfrog you. And, and so when people look at, you know, what we're doing and saying, oh, wow, you built a profitable business, thinking that that's the end game, that was far from the end game, right? The end game was, what I was hoping to build, which was, you know, hey, this community thing really works. We should be doing it for everybody. And that was our really missed opportunity. And I think if you underinvest, you do allow someone else to beat you to that vision. Um, and those are the trade-offs that you have to think about that as venture when people say, oh, these businesses are unprofitable. I'm like, look, you know, people said that about Amazon for a long time. And trust me, they're building an amazing business with incredible moats. And if they wanted to just purely be profitable, trust me, they can. But as Bezos has said, it's day one. And why, like at day one, do you want to stop growing and not building to that vision? And so that's the really exciting adventure and, and, and some of these opportunities. No, that's really interesting. It's, um, it's fascinating because I guess what you learned from it was maybe how much bigger your business could have been in some ways, if you didn't have to optimize for, for probability. But of course, your investors were kind of cash-strapped because you are you were the winner. So you had to make do with being profitable instead of going growth at all costs or you know uh, really concentrate on on growth and really hit the gas. Like like MySpace did, and, and of course then you know later on uh, Facebook did um, to an unbelievable uh, level. So why did you decide to uh, shift over to investing and how and, and how did primary uh, uh, start? So after I sold the company, um, the financial crisis hit. Um, my journey was a 12-year run. So to be honest with you, I was just tired. And, uh, and when the financial crisis hit, I said, this is probably a good time to take a break. <laughs> so let me see if the world's going to completely fall apart <laughs> first. And so I took a year off. I traveled the world and I came back and it was good. It was like a lot of self-reflecting on, okay, what do I want to do in this next part of my life journey? And I realized that, you know, what I loved about startups were the was where it was the early part of the journey you know i tell people that when a company's like zero to 20 employees it's like a family and when it's like 20 to 50 people it's like a tribe and when you get to 50 plus me and especially 100 plus it becomes an organization and i love family and tribes like the energy of the early periods of where the business can go and everyone's enthusiasm and trying to find product market fit and just the, the, the dynamics of it is just like the best. And so I said, you know what, but if I ran my own company, you always outgrow it. <laughs> so, so how do I just be around as like the family and tribe journey as much as possible? 
And I thought about, okay, how about if I invest and help incubate some businesses? And so really that's where I got started. So what I did was I, I carved out some personal capital from the money I made from community, the sale of Community Connect. And I said, let me invest and incubate some businesses. And so I started doing this at the end of 09. And that's when I, when I started kind of deploying capital that way. And so pretty early on, I was incubating a, um, a daily deal site focused on moms. So Groupon had just launched and they started having all this traction. And I thought it was an interesting business model. And so I, I basically grabbed, you know, a product manager and two engineers used to do work for me. And I said, hey, let's spin one up and focus on moms. Um, and so instead of, you know, we were doing like uh, local deals on music classes or where they have your kid's birthday party. And right around that time I was working on that, someone said, hey, you should meet this guy, Mark Laurie. He, he, he's running this company called diapers.com. And so I go meet with Mark and I think what was supposed to be like a 30 minute meet and greet, Mark was like, hey, this is a good idea. Why don't we do a partnership? You launch this site, we'll market to our customers and we'll do a revenue share. And so I said, oh, great. And so uh, Mark's a great entrepreneur, by the way. And he's just like, hey, let's move fast, uh, which I was like, this is amazing. And so, and so I'm working on that. We launched that business. It was doing a couple million in, in, in revenue pretty quickly because of, you know, basically uh, the diapers.com partnership. But at the same time, I had met a guy playing a game of pickup basketball in New York City. And he was this entrepreneur. He had started the magazine business, was trying to, he had sold that business, was trying to figure out what to do next. And he asked me to grab lunch and he was thinking of some ideas and wanted to run by me. So I met him over lunch. Um, to be honest with you, I only remember the ideas he ran by me. I think he knew they weren't that, that good. Uh, they were still really old. Um, but loved the guy. And I was like, wow, this guy is just so smart and talented. And so we stayed in touch and we would get together bad ideas around. And then he ended up going to business school. And his first semester in business school, we were catching up over lunch. And he was looking at the whole kind of daily deal space. I told him, wow, I know a lot about this. Um, kind of was helping him with the idea. Uh, and, and that's how Bomb founded Coupon. So Bomb, uh, Kim founded a company called Coupon, which originally started more as a daily deal model. And I was an investor, um, a board member, fortunately, an advisor to him. And so, uh, so in it since kind of day one with him, I'm still on the board there. And now that business is definitely uh, no longer kind of a daily deal model. It kind of grew and pivoted into uh, be much more than that. It's kind of part Amazon, part uh, DoorDash, part kind of Instacart, um, and probably a lot more other things in the future. But it's been an incredible ride and journey. And so was doing that, um, also was an investor in companies like Noom on the behavioral weight loss side, was one of the first checks into Jet.com. Um, so luckily built a really good track record with my own capital and then said, wow, this is kind of working. But I was a basically one man show and really then got bullish about New York City and said, you know what, like the key insight that I had was, you know, the, the New York City tech market had really felt like it was about to hit this inflection point. Um, and really it was because about the talent. And I tell people, the best thing that happened in New York City tech was the financial crisis. You know, before the financial crisis, like people like me that left investment banking, my friends were like, you're going to do what? Leave investment banking to do a tech startup? Like, that's a terrible idea. And then when the financial crisis hit, that, that all changed, right? Like people that used to say like, hey, 
I work at Goldman Sachs and used to puff up their chest. If you asked them like where they work, they'd be like, I work at Goldman Sachs. <laughs> like, like it just became less noble work. It became less lucrative. Um, and people were just not inspired by that type of work. And so you saw kind of a wave of entrepreneurs hit the New York City tech scene. So, you know, a guy like Mark Laurie used to work at Bankers Trust and sales and trading before he started diapers.com. Dave Gilboa was at Allen & Co. before he started Warby. Alexa Von Tobel was at Morgan Stanley before she started LearnVest. Jason Finger was a corporate lawyer in New York ordering uh, food from his corporate law job late at night off of paper menus before he founded Seamless, right? So you saw all this wave of talent hit. And at the time, Tumblr was the big exit in New York City, right? A, a $1.1 billion sold to Yahoo. It's 2013-14. And people were questioning whether it be another big outcome. And I said, look, the talent is now finally here. You give them a little time, they're going to learn how to build big outcomes. And that's what got me conviction around, all right, now it's starting to start a venture fund. Because when you looked at how many seed stage funds that were focused in New York, based in New York, that could lead seed rounds, and this is back in 2014, you can count them on one hand. And so I said, well, market's up and it's going to go up and to the right. It's not overpicked. Um, I was born and raised here, spent my entire career here. My networks run deep here. This is a good place to, to start a fund. And so that's when we founded Primary, my partner, I Brad Sreluga, and, you know, raised our first fund in 2015 and we were off to the races. This reminds me so much of my conversation with Lucy DeLand at Inspire Capital and also with Alexa, where Lucy was just saying how when she founded a company and was an operator, when she would tell her friends that were in banking or, or other organizations, like being an entrepreneur was not like a sexy or, or interesting job in New York in like the uh, late 2000s. And obviously it's very much changed now. I also wanted to know, like, what is your process when you, um, uh, for underwriting, like how, how do you evaluate ideas or companies since you're invested at the seed stage, which is still quite early. How do you think about what your, your role is as, as an investor? So there's a couple of things. So, you know, that question on the assessment and then, you know, what is our role and, you know, in, in working with those founders. So in line with that, I'd say number one, when we, the, you know, when people say, why do a New York City focused fund, isn't that, isn't that a constraint? Doesn't that create these limitations to what you can do? And I say, no, like New York City is a focus. And with that focus, you can figure out advantages into sourcing, to supporting your companies, to building brand. And you have to think about venture being now a very competitive asset class where it's not about just finding a deal, it's about winning a deal, right? And so you have to think about, well, it's not just about I'm living in a, my old kind of you know, bubble here. You're competing for every deal that you're doing and you gotta figure out how you're gonna have an edge. And so the New York City focus, what that allows us to do is say, all right, how do I deploy, how do we deploy our resources in order to do, have an advantage there? So let's take sourcing, for example. We have now 25 full-time people at primary doing seed, you know, focus on a New York City seed fund. That's 25 people that are going out, you know, with their own networks, building relationships with, with founders and operators. And that is one 
you know, one way to look at the firm as an advantage. We now also have 60 portfolio companies made up of 100 plus founders that are all based in New York that are part of our, you know, part of our ecosystem. And their networks of the founders that they meet that are going to start companies are referrals to us. We build, you know, we host a big event called the New York City Summit that would attract, you know, 1,200 people, investors and founders to come to it. It was our last event, you know, about a year and a half ago. We're going to relaunch that hopefully next year. So that plus our, you know, we run a ton of content marketing. We run a, something called the New York Founder Guide where uh, future founders can figure out who the active investors are and all these tips and resources. We run a, a, a free accelerator program. We don't take any equity. We don't take, you know, no one pays for it. Um, we're going through our third cohort now. Um, allowing those future founders to, you know, benefit from a, you know, educational kind of cohort model, accelerator type program. So if you think about all of that is focused on New York City, you know, what we're trying to do is blanket it and be more comprehensive in our coverage. Um, and so that hopefully we're building relationships with those future founders well in advance of them starting their companies. And when they get to, when we get to back them, we, we get to back up the truck on them. So getting back to your, yeah, your question on that is, so what drives us first and foremost is we want to great, we want to back the best talent, right? Seed stage investing is so early that trying to nail down a specific business plan is really, really, I think, you know, it, it's really kind of a, a not exactly the best exercise. So Coupon is a great example. Bomb started that business as a more of a deal site focused on the Korean market. We're now 100% out of the deals business. The one common thread in that journey is that founder CEO. He's an amazing founder. Um, and what you're trying to find are those founders that will just eventually figure it out and build large outcomes. And whatever they set as a plan now, it could be there could be some wrong assumptions or wrong dynamics that happen in there. And they have to kind of pivot or adjust. And ultimately, it's the founder that has to make those adjustments. And that's who you're betting on. So we really... Um, rest a lot of our investment decision on, you know, the caliber of the founder. Do we really believe in that person and their ability to build a, uh, a market leading company? And then we think about definitely, you know, the market that they play in because, you know, playing in a, a market that has tailwinds that are larger, that's ripe with opportunity is a huge advantage. Um, and so I think the combination of founder and market are our biggest factors with founder being probably 80% of the decision. How do you also think about like this current climate of deals? It seems like so much speed is happening and price, it, I mean, the prices are just really crazy. Seems almost like a seed round, like a series A round from a few years ago. What's your sense of the market and how do you think about this in regards to primary and how you invest? I mean, Mike, you notice, I mean, venture at the end of the day is a parallel game, right? So in anybody's fund, if it becomes a successful fund, it's probably going to be driven off of a few few winners, right? Especially your early early stage investors. If you're an early stage investor, a lot of your, a lot of your companies are going to fail. They're going to go to zero. They're going to be they're going to lose money. But hopefully, your winners will be huge winners, and that could really drive um, incredible returns, right? So, you know, and what kind of returns can you get? I mean, you know, coupon is a great example where if you were in the earliest rounds, it's it was over a thousand x, right? So which is amazing. But at the same time, so you have to ask yourself, well, if that's the case, you know, then what's then the right price? And people have said, well, these valuations are getting crazy. And in reality, they're, they're, if you think about it, they should be going up. 
The asset class has been incredible asset class over the last few years, especially if you've been in the right deals and in the better funds. So the better funds have had great performance. And you've seen the news out there, like endowments are showing 50, 60 plus percent IRRs over the past year or two, um, really driven off of venture, right? So incredible amount of alpha being produced here. And really these are driven by these special companies. And so what people are doing is they're paying up, hoping that you know, they're getting one of these special companies. And if you get one of those special companies, the valuations that you're seeing are gonna feel like a deal. Um, now, the challenge is you have to get into those really special companies. And that's gonna be the, the tricky part, whereas the, the, cap, the market's gotten a lot more competitive and there is gonna be plenty of special companies you're gonna try to get into, but you may not get the deal. Um, because each of these companies, especially their really good ones, are probably going to have multiple term sheets, multiple options, and trying to get into them is going to be really difficult. And so that's really the challenge of the market is I think the managers that are able to kind of win the right to work with the best founders are going to win. So us at Primary, as we have scaled this, our AUM, you know, our last set of funds is a $155 million core fund, $100 million opportunity fund. As we have scaled our size of our AUM, we plow our manager fees back into our team and our resources. So when we first started the firm, we had five people full-time. You know, Now we have 25 people, right? And we're investing in not only our investment team, but especially our portfolio impact team, where we help our companies post investment. So we have over a dozen people that are operators starting with operating partners, C-suite level execs um, that are there really supporting our companies. And then they have teams of people under talent and recruiting, market development or business development, strategic finance. So we say to these companies, hey, at the seed round, after your seed round, you're not gonna you know, hire a CFO or a chief people officer or a recruiting team. Like, let us help you with these things. And we'll give you these resources for free in order for you to get to your series A. And when you get your Series A, you're going to raise a big Series A and you're going to start hiring all these other resources. And so you're not going to need as much of our help. But we're going to help you get from C to A. And that's been a, a really good part of a value proposition, and which has allowed us to win really good deals. Um, and the proof's in the pudding where, you know, if you look at our stats, 92% of our companies that have gone out to market their raise a Series A had gotten their Series A, which definitely over-indexes for seed funds. And it's not because what we do is special pixie dust is because we win the right to work with really great founders because we just we just do more work um and that's why as we kind of continue to scale the firm and our funds we're going to continually invest in team and resources to deliver as much value to our portfolio companies as possible what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally um that's a good question so i'd say on the personal front and it's maybe less about the book but the experience of the book. So when I was in third grade, at the end of the day of class, uh, my third grade teacher, Mrs. Sullivan, who was a great teacher, um, would read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to us. Um, and it was like the first book, and especially, you know, you're, you're seven, eight years old, that it was like, with her especially reading it, and she was such a great storyteller when she would read it, and Charlie, Charlie, Charlie and Chocolate Factory is an amazing story. But then when the, the way that she told this story, the, the, the whole classroom was just like 
enamored and they just loved it. And we looked forward to it every day. And so the reason why I think that book was so relevant for at least me in my life was just the importance of storytelling. Being a founder, being a VC, you know, being someone that has to like help recruit people at either a firm or their companies, like storytelling and, and having that impact in pushing people's thoughts and imagination is really an incredible like skill and a gift. And if you can do that incredibly well, it can be so beneficial in so many ways. Um, so that's from a personal aspect, from a business aspect, a lot of great, you know, kind of business books, business readings. I mean, one, one, one to pull out was, uh, the, uh, a book that's been around for a while. It's been, you know, kind of a bestseller too. It's called first break all the rules. And there's a part of that book that really talks about this notion of focus on your strengths and forget about your weaknesses. You know, people tend to like try to figure out their weaknesses and say, oh, I got to get better at my weaknesses. And they tend to then like not focus on their strengths. And this book really was like, look, there are certain weaknesses and habits that you're just never going to be able to break from. And maybe the other way of really kind of improving yourself is figure out your strengths and figure out how you can be incredible at your strengths. And that's something I realized that in reality of how I want to operate, I realized like I have plenty of flaws <laughs> um, and I'm not good at a lot of things, but there's certain things I'm really good at. And I just double, triple, quadruple down on them and make sure I'm really good at that. And so what's an example of that? You know, I think I've been fortunate enough to like, I have a good nose for talent and then I have a good ability to try to get those to just like hang around really talented people and try to be helpful. And then I hitch my wagon to them and really good things happen. And so that's been a talent that luckily I've had. And as an investor in VC, that's actually served me really well. And then on places where I do have weaknesses, you know, at primary, we build teams of people where their strengths are my weaknesses and they're great compliments to how we can serve our founders and be a better firm and, and do better work. And, and so when you're able to really understand that, I think, you know, you can get a lot further along if you kind of focus on your strengths and forget about your weaknesses, but also then as you build out your team, complement your weaknesses with people that um, will make you great at, at those things that, you're, that you are weak in. What is one piece of advice that you have for any founder that's building? I'd say probably number one is be obsessed, obsessed about finding and working with great talent. It's the biggest unlock of your business, right? You look at any great company, it's easily, you know, 80, 20, if 90, not 90, 10 rule, right? Like 80 or 90% of the value probably comes from 10 to 20% of the, the staff. And it's really being driven by these, like really these stars, these special people that kind of are adding so much value push the company forward, are both like incredible thinkers, doers, culture builders, all of these things. And those really special talented people create a, such a massive unlock for your business. And so I think the founders who think about like their job as, hey, I am obsessed about finding and recruiting and working with the best are those people that are able to really unlock and become incredibly successful. And so when I meet founders who are like, oh, you know, yeah, I hired a recruiter and I'm just doing the bare minimum or what they think is like a lot of work. And I'm like, no, 
The great founders are 10xing whatever you're doing now in terms of finding and recruiting the best talent. And if you don't think of that um, and make yourself super special in your ability to do so, you're never going to build a super, you know, super special company. I love that being obsessed with finding and working with great talent. No, that's uh, uh, that's that's amazing. That's great. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time. This has been so much fun. I appreciate it, Mike. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. And there you have it. It was a pleasure speaking with Ben. I highly recommend following him on Twitter at BKSun. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone.